This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash freelancership. Hello, everyone, and this is our monthly Q&A, uh, live Q&A show. So we are broadcasting live and in color to the internet, and we're going to try to answer lots of questions from lots of people or something approximating lots of them. Tell you what, guys, we already have a question. Mandy wrote, do you find it hard to work 40 billable hours in a week? If so, how would you explain it to an outsider? <laughs> Jonathan, <laughs> you seem to be especially bemused by this. Go for it. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that you shouldn't be billing for your time, you know, of course, but I know that that's a complicated thing for people to get their heads around. Uh, but when I did bill by the hour for my time, yeah, it was very hard to bill 40 hours, to do 40 hours billable because you have all sorts of other overhead, even if you're working for a full-time employee for an for some firm or something like that because you still have to log your hours, you still have to answer email, administrative stuff, and forget about it if you're running your own firm because you've got to deal with all the accounting and all of the marketing, everything you have to do to run a business. So if you're dependent on paying your mortgage based on a 40-hour billable work week, you're going to be working 80 hours or at least 60 doing all of the additional uh, administrative overhead stuff. So what ends up happening is billing by the hour, you're setting this artificial limit for the amount of money you can make because you can't just infinitely raise your hourly rate to $1,000 an hour. No one would ever agree to that. Uh, so it wasn't really the question, but I would urge you to consider thinking about billing in a different unit other than time. Well, let, let me take that in a slightly different direction then. So you're saying don't bill by the hour and then you won't have to work 40 hours a week necessarily or bill 40 hours a week. But would you say that you work 40 hours a week? I mean, how do you divide your time percentage-wise? Assuming you work 40 a week, how much of that is client work and how much of that is administrative work? That's uh, me personally. I do a lot of, yeah, I'd say 20% of my time is marketing. Uh, maybe another 10% is administrative, roughly. Not quite half of non-billable work. Uh, but the billable work I do, air quotes again, the billable work I do is mostly standby type stuff. So people pay to get access to my expertise about something. They're not paying me to do labor. So it's not like just, you know, it's not like they're saying, okay, you know, you sweep that floor for two hours and we'll give you 10 bucks an hour. They're saying, we might have important questions for you that we need to get answers to ASAP. Can you stand by? And so you get paid for sitting there doing other stuff or even, you know, potentially researching the subject matter area of your retainer clients, for example. So it's not the same thing as being, you know, showing up, punching in, doing your thing, and then leaving. Eric, how about you? I mean, it's kind of the same thing for me. Uh, like, even if they're full-time employees, they're not getting 40 hours of productive work in. Like, I can't remember there's some studies that did stuff, but who knows how valid it is. But I think you're lucky if you get 50%. So... 20 hours of actual work out of a 40-hour week. As a consultant, I tell my clients, because I, I bill by the week, I say, um, you're going to get 30 hours plus or minus five, depending on you know, if they're having a bunch of meetings. Meetings drain me more than writing code, so they're going to be on the lower amount of hours. 
but I try to focus on like what I'm committing to, you know, like Jonathan gets on me about like the outcomes I'm giving them, what they're going to get results wise. Um, and I think that's kind of the more important thing. When I was doing hourly, but I was blocking it out in the weeks, I think 25 hours was, it was easy to hit. And then I think a couple weeks I did 35 hours, but then I would have to push administrative marketing stuff into another week. Like I couldn't get it all done, you know, cause I wasn't willing to do, you know, a 60 hour, 80 hour work week just to get, you know, half of that as billable. So I think roughly 20 hours, so, you know, 50% of a 40 hour week. So 20 hours, maybe up to 30 hours is kind of what you can expect to build depending on, you know, your energy levels and how you can rearrange commitments. Right. So I'm, I'm going to basically agree with you guys and be the poster child for the person who did it wrong. Because for years now, for many years, I have basically been assuming that I'll bill roughly 40 hours a week, give or take a little bit. And so what do I do to make up for that? Well, I spend evenings and parts of weekends catching up on email and billing and administrative stuff, and it's basically impossible. And so a number of months ago, one of the motivations that I had for going into training and specifying that is, first of all, then I can raise my billing rates, and second of all, then I get to control my time much more easily. And so I say I teach, I mean, the work week in Israel is Sunday through Thursday. So I tell my clients that I work Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's when I teach. Maybe on rare occasions I'll teach on a Thursday also, but probably not. And so I basically set myself up for a 40, uh, a four-day, I'm sorry, which is like 32 hours more or less of billable work week when it's really very productized. You know, I'm used to teaching these courses, and then I try to use Thursdays for catching up with marketing, billing, and so forth, and just relaxing a little bit. I do some of that on Fridays as well, but not, not nearly as much. And I definitely have seen, I'm still not at the point that I want to be in terms of number of hours of work versus number of hours of actual, you know, real person time. But it's been a dramatic improvement already. I, I definitely feel like I'm getting more bang for the buck. And I feel like I'm having time now also to work on these administrative and marketing things. So in theory, I guess I'm going to say you could build 40 hours a week, but then you're going to be working a lot of time. And I, I think more importantly, I've learned that you're going to be stunting the growth and the potential for your consulting business because you really won't be putting the effort you need to in the marketing and in the business development. Yeah, that's where you get stuck in that treading water phase where you can't grow the business without working an 80-hour week. And if you're going to work that hard, why do you even create this job for yourself that's working you to death, right? It's like if you wanted to work to death, you could do that for anybody. Yeah, and that's well, actually the spot I'm in right now. I want to say I'm going up on, I think it's going to be 10 weeks next week, but basically 10 weeks build straight. It's between. Uh, it's going to end up being between three different clients. Um, but just I schedule people back to back to back to back and I'm completely drained. I have, I'm basically doing client work and I have, I think Wednesdays and Fridays, I have like half an hour, maybe an hour of extra time to get stuff done. But the big effect on me is I'm just so tired. Like my productivity is all going towards the client. So I feel like I can barely get anything else done. And so what's going to happen is, you know, a few weeks from now, um, you know, once this is done, I'm taking a whole week off for myself and basically going to recover, catch up on administrative, catch up on email, um, I might even end up taking two weeks or three just because it was such an intense effort. And it sucks because I've been, you know, I think since April, I've been, it's, you know, end of June right now. So two, three months, I've been wanting to do a bunch of like reposition my business, start marketing around this angle, do this, build this type of product. And I haven't been able to, it's all been stuck in my head, just, you know, waiting until I get the spare cycles. And so that's a, that's a hard thing to do. And I've tried some, some other things and I have some ideas to work around it, but you have to be very careful. If you try to build on the higher ends of the range, you're going to burn out of energy and you're going to run out of time and you have to like actually go off the clock to recover. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I spent today, so this week it's a relatively light week and that 
I was at a, two conferences yesterday and spoke with them, and then tomorrow I'm teaching a full day, and on Thursday I'm meeting with a client for like four hours or something. But that meant that I had today, especially today, to sit and go through email and work on some project proposals and answer all the questions my accountant had for me. And it took the whole day, and I'm still not through all the email that's accumulated. And you need to factor that in because I don't want to tick off clients or potential clients. Like, they need to realize that my business is running for them and that it's not going to get totally uh, stuck just because I'm tired and running myself into a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm yeah. pushing it too far when I can't even find time to write proposals that people have asked for. Yeah. <laughs> that's a bad Yeah, well, I got one I'm going to hopefully do tonight. Yeah, I've got two that are on my to-do list for weeks. Uh, I'm going to start them off by saying, if you're still interested in this, you know, it's been busy. Right. Okay. Do we have? There was one other question someone has said in the chat. How do you set aside time for admin work, billing, and blogging? So I guess it's a related question, but slightly different. And also, I guess what proportions do you uh, do those sorts of things? Take them one by one. Billing, I bill people in advance. So when I send out a proposal, it just takes care of itself. It's kind of like one thing. Blogging, I've never been able to stick to a schedule. I, I did for a little while do like every Monday I would post a new blog post and it was great to have it done. But, you know, every Sunday I'd be up late scrambling to get it written. So I haven't had good luck with that with blogging. So what I do generally is I take when something happens like in my coaching Slack room or another Slack room that really I'll get excited about it and like, oh, this would make a great blog post. I'll just stop whatever I'm doing and just get it out as fast as possible. Uh, and then perhaps iterate on it. Podcasting actually is the one exception to my inability to schedule content marketing types of activities. And I think I've been successful with both being on Freelancer's show and also uh, my other podcast, which is Terrifying Robot Dog. I think that, you know those are scheduled weekly, and <laughs> you know, like that. Uh, yeah, those are scheduled weekly, and I think I stick to it because I'm not the only one doing it. So. Uh, perhaps for someone who's doing a content marketing type of thing or they want to be doing blogging uh, on a regular basis, maybe, I don't know how you do a partner with blogging, but some kind of accountability partner or some kind of, at least put it in your calendar scheduled so that, you know, it's in there. And for accounting type stuff, I think we talked about last week, I fell off the wagon, but for the longest time I had that, it was like my half day Friday morning was just accounting stuff. So that's, I guess, put it in the calendar is the best thing you can do, but I know how it goes. It's hard. You have to be diligent. Right. Eric, how about you? It fluctuates a lot. Like right now, like I said, as I'm I'm basically slammed for time, and so I've basically cut stuff as far back as I can. I have a, for the freelancer kind of blog, I have a newsletter that goes out Tuesday, so I usually spend Monday writing it, and so maybe an hour, hour and a half slotted for that, just you know, barely get it out the door in time. My blog, I've been putting a lot of my newsletter content on my blog for that, so I haven't had to do much blogging. Um, it's mostly just taking the existing content, getting a good image for it, uploading it. And for that, it's I'm not on a schedule for it, so I can just do four or five at once and just kind of you know trickle them out or just let it be. It doesn't matter. Tuesdays, we have this show is when we record, so that's basically my free time for there. Uh, Wednesdays, I usually have open. Thursdays, sometimes there's usually like a meeting or um, a mastermind thing on Thursdays. And then Friday is like the last open day of my week. And I've been trying to do like my weekly review then and try to do a bit of sales work then just so I'm not like, you know, waiting till I run out of projects before I start doing sales. When I'm not as slammed, I typically do at least an hour, I try to do two hours a day of these kind of things. And I'll like to batch it up. So like maybe one week, all of the free time I'll spend writing a bunch of white papers and articles for my consulting site. 
And then I'll have those all come out over the next two or three months. And then the next week I'll do some stuff for my freelancing blog or um, that sort of idea. It's just, it's easier to kind of batch stuff up and stay in that zone. Billing, I have a lot, a lot of similar stuff as Jonathan. I send an invoice up front. My invoices, it's all pretty automated. So it only takes like five minutes to create one. So that's not a big deal. Uh, I do bookkeeping on the weekend. So it's not really business time and it takes maybe 15 minutes at the most, if that. Sales stuff, I try to do at least twice a week, maybe three times a week. And it's most of the times follow up. Sometimes it's sales calls. Sometimes it's going through a bunch of leads that I have, but I have a system for that. So it's just mostly just cranking through and doing the work. Um, and I can flux that if I'm really busy. I don't do a lot of sales. If I'm not as busy and I have more time, I can do more sales. And that's most of my admin work. I don't have a lot of paper that I deal with. Although you might be able to see behind me, I have stacks of paper behind me that I need to scan <laughs> in uh, some year. And then, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, podcasts and stuff like that's so other marketing and, you know, having an accountability partner or a group that I'm committed to and having a schedule for that kind of makes it so it's not even a question of, am I going to do it this week? It's, it's going to happen. It's automatic. I think that's it really. Yeah. I'll actually second that notion. I said earlier, like, I don't know how you'd have an accountability partner for blogging, but being in a mastermind with a bunch of people who are really creative and crank out a lot of great content all the time is very inspiring and would probably be beneficial for people who were trying to get into the habit of, let's say, blogging regularly or doing a white paper, maybe putting out an ebook. If you hang around with other people who are doing that all the time, you're, you're just going to automatically start doing it. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, I, um, I guess it was about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, when I was in Chicago for like six weeks, four weeks, six weeks, working on my dissertation. That was, of course, when I decided that I was going to blog every day. Uh, and, and of course, I didn't tell my advisor this at the time. He thought I was enough of a slacker, and it's partly true. But basically, I found it to be a very nice escape, but also it forced me to write something short. And I actually really enjoyed that. And for like, I don't know, a month, yeah, a month or six weeks, I was blogging every single day, and it felt fantastic, but it required that I not be going to clients and working on client stuff and, doing, and not have a family, right? I was totally on my own at the time. And so in coming back to reality, my blog has been, I would say, probably every two to three weeks. And it's definitely not on any official schedule. And moreover, it's like often what will happen is someone will ask me a question in one of my courses. And I'll be like, wow, that's a really great question. And I'll dig into it and to research it partly for them, partly for me, and then I turn it into a blog post. And if I'm sort of in the zone of researching it, then I can just sit and write and write and write. Two hours later, bam, I've got something and I post it. And sometimes it's great and you know, sometimes it's terrible, but that's just sort of that's the nature of blogging. I mean, my newsletter, I think, has been the thing that I've been sort of bad about finding time for. But I'm trying to get a little better at that. I think I've been on that like once every two weeks or so. And with that also, like today, I sent out something in my newsletter because I said, well, you know, I'm not getting this big article done that I wanted for them yet, so let me just do something small. Someone asked me about this, send it out. I mean, accounting, so my accountant does most of my paperwork to send out invoices. I do need to, like, check the bank account and make sure that things have been deposited and then send out the receipts for those. But that's less than an hour a month. It's really not that much. And because I've got it all electronic now, I just, you know, go to my bank's website in one window, go to my, uh, um, you know, invoices and receipt program in the other window, click, 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 and it's basically done. So it's really not that much of a pain as much as it was once when I was using the, 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 not, the, the carbonless paper and the three copies and the pink copy and the white copy. And, oh, my God, that was bad. <laughs> bad for everyone, in fact. <laughs> Okay, we've got some nice, nice new questions. So you guys have talked about in the past in different areas, but how can someone measure when they are ready in their skills to break into freelance from a full-time job? Or is it better to just dive in and see what happens? Any thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, that. I know a lot of people who come across like they're never going to be ready to jump. They talk and talk and talk about, I just need one more degree, I just need one more certification, I just need one more thing, and then I can finally start my own business. So on the one hand, I don't think everyone's ready to just go off and hang out a shingle and start freelancing or consulting. But in general, I feel like people are a lot readier than they think. So I would tend to err on the side of it's better to just dive in and see what happens. But I'm a stage bet type of person. I'm not like a real risk, huge risk taker. I like to take calculated risks. So I would at least get some kind of a mentor or maybe there's a friend in the family who works for themselves that can help with stuff that is the stuff that's so shocking when you're going from a full-time job to working for yourself. And it's mostly the your work will probably not be that different assuming that you're doing the same thing. You know, assuming you're going from, say, doing web design for a company to doing web design for yourself or directly with clients. The stuff that's going to take you by surprise is all of the taxes and the paperwork and the legal stuff, all that sort of thing. And you can outsource all of it, but you need to be aware of it first. So talking to someone in your family or some kind of mentor that you can uh, get easy access to probably be a big help. But in terms of the skills that you have at your job, if someone's already paying you to do it, you're probably good enough to do it. Yeah, that's, that sounds reasonable. Um, Eric, any, any thoughts along those lines too? Yeah, I mean, there's the idea of the just one more thing person, which I see it a lot. And those are the kind of people that, well, the kind of people, it's, they're going to need a lot to push them to actually jump in. Um, and then there's, you know, the other tangent is people who just jump in and jump out and jump in, jump out. I think based on what I've seen, unless you have like a big circumstance that's forcing you into it, I think it's good to try something on the side or try something um, at nights and see if you like it because like what Jonathan was saying, like it's the business aspect is the hardest part and that's going to be the part where you're going to struggle the most. Like if you're a developer, a designer, copywriter, just a, a writer, all of those, like the technical thing, the actual, the working in your business stuff, like that's stuff that you know, it's going to be easy for you. It's the client management, billing, finding clients, marketing, that's the stuff that's going to trip you up. And, you know, you can procrastinate and try to find some training, try to read books on it and all that, but really it's the kind of thing like you have to get in and do it. There's so many different ways to market, so many different ways to sell, all that. I think you have to try it and figure out what way is going to work for you. And if you have, like, a mentor, like Jonathan was saying, like, that can guide you, like, hey, don't even go look in that. That's just a, a tar pit. You're going to get stuck in there and it's not going to work for you. Like, that could cut a lot of time off of it. And I think the other thing is, like, for me... We moved out of state, and so basically I made myself unemployed. Like, I left my job. So that was actually a good situation for me to do it. If you have that, a similar one or if you um, are switching jobs or switching careers or any of that stuff, like, it might be worth kind of making a, a little bet. Like, I actually did the same thing. Like, you know, I'm going to try to do freelancing or consulting for three months. If I can't get it to work in three months, I'll go get a job or I'll figure out what's going on and you know, maybe even get a part-time job just to kind of keep enough money coming in while you figure out and learn the ropes. But if you're questioning that you're ready, I'm kind of, you know, kind of wondering, like, are you questioning because you're scared? Like, it's just a fear thing? Or are you questioning because there's actually, like, real things blocking you? And, you know, in either case, like, what can you actually do to remove it? You know, could you experiment and get rid of the fear? Could you make a list of all the things you have to, you feel like you have to do and actually ask someone who's doing a business, like, do I need to learn double entry bookkeeping before I start my business? No, you don't. No. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's also a little temperament personality. Some people are, like I said, some people are better at diving in, some people aren't. Yeah, comfort level with risk is a big one. You know, 
I mean, I, I, you know, people, it comes up often at family stuff or parties. People will say, oh, wow, I could never work for myself. And uh, they're interested in, in what's involved with that. And it's definitely not for everyone, especially if you're working from home. That's, like, also not for everyone. But if you're thinking about it, you could at least do a side hustle, like Eric alluded to. It's, like, set up some kind of productized service or some kind of product in your free time. Uh, write an ebook. Try and sell an ebook on on your subject. So that'll give you a huge head start if you do end up going solo, and it'll probably give you a big boost of confidence that people are willing to spend 19 bucks for this book of mine on whatever WatchKit OS or you know WatchKit OS, like developing for Apple Watch, whatever your thing is. And if you can make that happen, or it can at least pay for itself the time you put into it, that should give you a lot of confidence and be an indication that you're on the right track. Right. I mean, there's along the same lines of what you guys said, but I mean. To say that someone is ready with their skills to break into freelance from a full-time job. So someone is already paying you a salary to solve their problems and to do things for them. So obviously, like, you have skills that are of value and you have skills that are helping to advance a business. And you might not be God's greatest gift to, let's say, programming. But that's okay because that's actually less important than identifying and communicating and working with people. In many ways, I think we've said it many times in the show, it's in many ways better to be a mediocre programmer and a great business person to succeed in consulting than the other way around. Because the brilliant programmers who are terrible at business, they will be, well, they'll be terrible at business. And I, I mean, I think I might have mentioned this story in the past, but like when the recession hit a number of years ago, I remember saying to my accountant that I was really worried because all these computer people were being laid off and clearly they were all going to become consultants and compete with me. And my accountant just thought this was, and he was right, he was just completely laughable. He was like, no, no, no. Most people want to have a steady paycheck. Most people want to know how much money they're going to get on you know, the first of each month or whatever it is, and so they're not going to take that risk. Now, I do think that it is a bit risky to say, well, I've had a full-time job for the last two years. I'm going to go and quit, and I'm going to start consulting. You definitely want to ease into it somehow. Talk to people. Yeah. Talk, find out what, what their pain points are. Talk to, find out what people are interested in. If you're in a programming niche, if you're using a particular language or technology, Find out if people are looking for consulting help there. And if you can do it in weekends or evenings, that's definitely the best. And then yeah. someone asked, uh, DJ Shaver said like, uh, in the chat here, it also helps if you're debt-free and have some money in the bank. That's definitely true. <laughs> that's definitely, definitely true. But if you ease into it in this sort of nights and weekends thing, which doesn't mean it's easy, especially if you have a family. But if you do that, then you can sort of measure how much you'll be able to make to some degree. And you won't necessarily need to hit the ground with an insurance policy. We've talked about it before, but the savings is kind of just a, a cushion to make it so whatever risk you're taking isn't as risky, you know. So yeah, you might be, you know, jump from a job into freelancing full time, but if you have a six months cushion and you have six months bringing any kind of income, you know, that's that's what happened with us. I think we had like two or three months because we just moved, so a lot of moving stuff. But you know, if I couldn't get it to work in those three months that I made the bet with my wife, you know, we had that savings account, so our lifestyle wasn't going to be affected. And then at the last month, I would jump in, find a job if it came to that, and it didn't. Yeah, when I went solo, my wife had like a six-figure job as an account, uh, an ad executive. So we had, and we had no kids at the time. So we had the cushion helped a lot. Looking back on it, I don't think we ended up really needing it that much. I was able to get things started pretty quickly, but it helped a lot emotionally. Like if we were in the same situation we are now, where you know she's a stay-at-home mom and we've got two kids and a mortgage. And I had a full-time job that was paying me, like, I don't know, whatever, big money. It would be more daunting to just throw that up in the air if I had, if I didn't have the experience that I have. 
you know, if I was like 25-year-old me in 45-year-old situation, then uh, it would be a lot scarier because you've got all those responsibilities and you're affecting other people's lives directly. So for somebody in that situation, I would definitely go with the side hustle type of thing where, you know, I look back at my last corporate job, which was like 2002. It was the last time I had, I worked for a, a corporation. And I remember thinking that they worked us like dogs. <laughs> I look back on it, it was like a country club. <laughs> and I could have done so much stuff to build a business in my free time. Not necessarily on the clock, but, you know, even, in, you know, I commuted like over an hour to work every day. I could have been doing a million things like planning, dictating podcasts or blog posts into a recorder. There's a million things I could have been doing to get myself set up to go solo back then. What I ended up doing was I went and worked for a, a small sort of a boutique firm and then I went solo after that. But if I was back, you know, if I was back in the corporate land, oh man, it'd be like a no-brainer. Right, right. It definitely seems like after working on your own, going back to a, a, a regular job, you see, well, it's also just like the experience and you've, you've gotten older and so you see, it's like being a kid versus being a parent. I look at my kids and I'm like, oh my God, they have so much time to do whatever they want and they feel pressure. But yeah, for sure. There's another common one that people say, it, I think it's a Gary Vaynerchuk aphorism, which is like, you know, oh, you think you don't have enough time to start the hustle on the side? Throw your TV out. You know, shut off the TV <laughs> and never watch it again. That's like all that time is just wasted. Yeah, my, my first job, both when I was in college during the summers and then afterwards, was at HP in uh, the medical products group uh, outside of Boston. And there was a guy who was a contractor. And I remember at some point, and like, I knew nothing. You know, I was 18, I was 19. And everyone went off to a meeting, and the only people who did not were him and me. Me, because I was the student intern, and him because he was a contractor. I was like, oh, you know, why, why didn't you go? And he told me what it was like to do contractor, be a consultant and everything. And he was like, this is the best thing ever, and you make tons of money, and you take vacations when you want. I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Right? I had no idea what he was saying. And now it's funny, like, bits and pieces of that conversation come back to me, and... I totally understand now what he was saying, but without the perspective of having worked a real job before, it was, it was impossible to, to get it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was definitely through just sort of, I didn't know what consulting was when I started. I was 25, I was moving to Israel, didn't own anything, didn't have a family. Why not? I'll give it a try. Yeah. I'm noticing in this question that it says at the end, is it still important to niche down right away? Might it be more helpful to wait a little longer until I have more experience to choose a niche from? That's an interesting question. The thing with niching down is that I think, I can't think of a reason not to do it. It's a great thing to do. You know, it's like, do you want to be in competition with a million web developers or do you want to be in competition with zero web developers? <laughs> you know, like, niche down. But to his or her point, it's picking one is very hard. Thinking about it, though, you know, with people I coach, I coach some people who are who are working full-time jobs and planning to go solo, and I coach other people who have been running small firms for a long time. And none of them have an easy time picking a niche. Uh, some of them probably respect it, uh, respect that it's a good idea more so than others, but they still all have a really hard time picking one for a variety of reasons, as Philip Morgan says, the fear. So I, I guess my feeling on that is that you should be trying to niche down like immediately as soon as you are thinking about going solo as soon as you're thinking about doing any kind of marketing you'd be crazy not to position yourself in a very laser focused way that you solve a particular expensive problem for a particular target market and i can think of no reason not to do it 
So I guess my answer would be don't wait. Be thinking about, I put out this fire for these people. And remember, I mean, this is an important point that I think both you, Jonathan, and Philip said when we had him on, was it two weeks ago, that the niching is a marketing thing. And so you can choose your niche. Like, choose something that's both interesting to you that's in demand. But that's not going to change the skill set you necessarily need. So, you know, you want to be a better Ruby, JavaScript, Python, database, C Sharp, you name it, developer. But the niching is going to be, okay, what is a community of businesses that's really going to benefit from what I'm doing that I can say I'm the you know guy to help you do X, Y, Z? Right. Yeah, there's a definite separation there. So it, it, hopefully knowing that will make people feel like it's less of a, a wrenching identity shift from going from, say, being a web developer to, you know, we always use the same example, being a web developer for dentists. You know, it's, it's uh, or, or better yet, you know, we solve this problem for dentists, and we happen to use our web development skills to do that, but that's not how we market it. So, yeah, knowing that that's two separate things, how you market yourself and, and what you actually do uh, can be, or at least there's a, there's not, it's not completely disconnected, but your daily work isn't going to change that much, even if you niche your positioning way, way down. After I worked at HP, I then worked at Time Warner for about eight months in New York, and I was helping all these different magazines that were part of Time, Inc., to go online and do their websites. And um, I remember one particular meeting, you know, again, I was, I was 25. I knew nothing. I certainly knew, knew nothing of how to uh, talk to various companies or corporate people. We were in a meeting with some magazine, I can't remember which, and they said, well, can you do X or Y or Z? Like, and I, I actually said the, the line, in Time, Inc., oh, yeah, the, the content is irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, this multi-billion dollar corporation, which basically was established because content is the thing that makes the money, people were pretty horrified by this statement. And it's true, like, as a developer, you're like, who cares? But the perception of the marketing and the niching that you're doing to say, I know you and I understand your needs, and so I, I can communicate directly with you, that says a lot. And I did precisely the opposite thing to those folks in the room. Yeah, that's a great example. <laughs> that's a great example. It's like so much about this kind of a job is 100% communication skills that I I don't think you could overstate it. So like you like call it your bedside manner. It's mm -hmm. critical. And I think if you are aware of that and you leverage that in your marketing or you take the same approach in your marketing to speak the language of your prospective customers instead of speaking the language of your colleagues that also do Ruby on Rails or whatever, then you're going to automatically be much more attractive to, you know, folks who are, you know, probably delving into uh, or could be delving into an area of their business that they're very uncomfortable with, don't know what they're talking about, feel stupid talking about it, frankly, and, you know, every other aspect of their job, they are like the dude and then all of a sudden they have to talk to the web developer in front of all their employees and they basically don't know an API from an XML. And you know, if you can if you can sort of hold their hand through that, it's wildly valuable. Another thing that's helped me a little bit, just kind of the idea of you don't actually have to pick the final niche you're gonna live in forever. Um, you can switch and what I'm actually done recently or I'm gonna do once I get not as busy, but I decided like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on a niche, and I first started like I'm gonna work with e-commerce companies, and so did some research, looked at a lot of the uh, past clients I worked with, what results I've got for them, you know, the industries they're in, found like, okay, in the e-commerce stuff, I actually have a 
decent amount of experience with Shopify. And so I refined my niche one more step from e-commerce to e-commerce with Shopify. And so you can do that, especially if you're afraid of like jumping into something really, really deep. You can kind of take it one step at a time and kind of work your way down based on experience, based on research you found, and even just based on the clients you get. Um, and I think that's kind of a lower risk, lower commitment way of doing it. Um, you might get less results because you're not as focused, but it's a nice thing, especially if you're new to business, new to freelancing, and it's like there's so many new things you're trying to learn, that might be a way to kind of constrain it a little bit. Yeah, Philip gives the same advice, and, and it, I agree that it's a good way to transition is to just go down one step. Don't go down like four steps all at once. So at this point, we don't have any uh, questions from the chat room. So do you guys have any, have, have you encountered anything lately that would be interesting to discuss, or maybe from Jonathan, your your mentees, or Eric, you just wrote that. You you have a you have a question from your list. Yeah, I got a bunch. I'm kind of. I think you were talking about it earlier, Ruben. Like you know, as people email you questions, you kind of slot that as blog posts. I have this huge one. I even have a couple surveys that go out all the time, and I get a lot of questions. But this one, pretty specific, so it's good. Uh, basically, the question is, when do you suggest is an appropriate time to start billing when you're ramping up a project? So it's basically along the lines of like the the project starting, but it's like that early phase when stuff's getting started up. You know, if you're a developer, maybe you're getting uh, get set up or setting up a server. Uh, if you're a writer, maybe you're getting some briefs and interviews, and they're asking like, when do you start actually billing on the clock for that? Is that oh, that's what I was going to ask. Does the person mean how much setup stuff should you charge for, or yeah. are they saying when should you send the invoice? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that like when does the clock start? I basically give one like one free meeting with people. Like you know, it's a setup meeting where we talk and sort of introduce each other, introduce the problem, and then I send them the proposal, and then they call me on the phone and tell them tell, tell me that I'm expensive, and we negotiated a little bit, and then we're done. And then you know, either either done in a good sense, and we continue, and I go in the next time I bill them, or they say, oh, forget about it, guy, and then we're done in that sense. But um, very rarely I'll give them a second meeting, but only if I see incredible potential, and some people who should have been in the first meeting were not, and I'm in the neighborhood, and on, on, and on. And, and by the way, like, I also, if it's not obvious, and if it's, like, ambiguous at all, then I make it clear. So, like, I had a meeting with a company where I thought it was going to be an introductory meeting for lots of additional work, and I met with their database group, and we ended up going to a lot of detail, I ended up giving them a lot of value, and then it was clear that was, that, that was the end. So, I emailed the boss, and I said, I want to bill you for this. He said, oh, that's fine, sure, and that was that. It sounds like the person that Eric's asking Eric the question is almost worried about billing for setting up their dev environment. Is that yeah. fair? So that's yeah, and like, I've actually yeah. I've seen other variants of this of like, you know, not actually writing code for the client. Like maybe we're talking about features, like should I bill for that? Oh, so my, my mistake. Yeah, you should bill for that. <laughs> well, so there is a gray area, though. I, I agree that you should bill for it. But there is a gray area, and I think everyone who bills by the hour has been in this situation where... They do an estimate. The project starts. They are they get in to up to their elbows in the code, and they find something out that was not obvious before. Uh, there's a surprise. You know, they pull open the drywall, and the wiring is all from 1922, and the entire wiring in the house has to be replaced. And whoops, we didn't estimate that. We should, probably shouldn't have torn down the wall because you can't afford to do the whole job. Blah blah blah. So there's this uncomfortable situation that stems from the fact that the whole project started based on an estimate, not a quote, and now work has been started, money has been spent, hours have been burned, and it turns out that the estimate was way wrong. So you end up in the situation where you eat hours, and it could be 
to the point of the question, it could be that you need to educate yourself about this thing that you stumbled across. So you get into the middle of this Rails project and somebody's got like, there's like a C library that somebody linked directly into that now you have to learn how to like edit the C code to solve the problem. So do you charge for educating yourself about how to do that? You know, it, I feel like I'm not answering or I'm avoiding the question, but the whole thing is fundamentally flawed. You shouldn't be billing for any of it. You should be saying, here's how much it's going to cost for this project to be completed, for these goals to be reached. And it takes away all those questions about, should I bill for this or should I bill for that? Granted, not everybody's just going to jump into fixed bids and they probably shouldn't. So I think, to Ruben's point, you should explicitly say in your quote, these are the types of things I'm going to bill you for. If you're going to bill by the hour, mm -hmm. you should be explicit about the kind of things you're going to bill for. And if that includes setting up your dev environment, then so be it. They probably don't want to pay for that. They probably think your stuff should be set up. So you're gonna the question's gonna get answered one way or another. It's better to ask the question before checks start getting written than after checks start get start getting written. Because frankly, if you're billing by the hour, you probably should be be getting paid to set up your dev environment because it's for this client. It's otherwise you'd have it set up. So I mean, I mean, in general, you need to make it clear ahead of time the kinds of things you're gonna charge for and that it would include that. I don't know, Eric probably has a totally different take on it. Um, not totally different. I mean, I kind of have one rule of thumb, and it's, um, like Ruben said, I have a, if we're going to do one, maybe two sales calls, and it's purely about sales, maybe an overview of the project, not like, oh, we're going to do this feature by doing it this way, but like, we need this feature, we need that feature. Um, that's kind of for free. That's part of the sales process. If they start taking too long, then I push them into, well, we need to have a scoping project to talk about this in more detail. But basically for the project is if the work I'm doing delivers value, uh, it's basically build. And so that could be, I have to set up my dev environment for you because this is your project. It's it's not like I can't just like grab a Rails generator and use my editor and start on it. Like you have these other services you integrate with, I need these keys, you know, this or that. And so by me setting it up, it lets me work efficiently. Um, and I do, I actually do different things with that now. So it's actually, I set it up, but I can share it with other developers. So the rest of the team actually gets value from it too. The big thing I see it is like, you know, if there's meetings or discussion about features, like those are billed for because they're actually adding value to the project. You know, they might not be directly writing code, but it's clarifying with the team of what it's doing, what the project's supposed to be doing, how stuff should work. It's basically an education training type thing. Um, and so like I, in the past, when I was doing hourly, I would start billing basically right away. You know, contract sign, okay, we're going to get started. There might be a few cases where I would comp them time. If it's like setting up the dev environment, my laptop just screwed up. Um, like earlier, my, my sound was just all messed up. I wouldn't bill for that. That's kind of on me. Like you would expect that I would have a laptop with functioning sound. That's kind of a baseline setup, I would say. But one thing is now that I kind of do weekly billing, like a lot of that's kind of gone out the window. Like they're billing for access to me during this time. And so whether I need to set it up or not, that's kind of inconsequential to, you know, I committed to these features. I'm going to get them done. There might be some additions or subtractions, but from Monday through Friday, I'm, I'm working on your project. And if that is, you know, getting stuff set up, getting a test environment set up because it's complex, you know, so be it. You'll know that on the Monday morning meeting. Yeah, the interesting dynamic there is that it's on you to become more efficient. So if you can finish those weekly features in two days because you have a killer dev environment set up, or you invested a couple of weeks last year creating a plugin that does exactly what they need, boom, all of a sudden you're getting you're increasing your profit margin, delivering the exact same value faster and for the same amount of money. Where if, if you're selling your hours, you're selling your labor, 
then you just never, you constantly have these questions. I mean, they used to come up all the time. Do we charge, you know, when uh, I built by the hour, I did a lot of database programming. So it was one of those things where people would be like, oh, you're going to charge us to do the data import from the old database to the new database? Like, well, yeah. <laughs> and like, well, isn't that just like a five-minute operation? No, it's probably going to take a week, you know, to validate that it is imported properly. We're going from two different database types, different schemas, different underlying database engines. Uh, we need to validate that the data came across properly. There's a million things you have to do, you know, and if that stuff's not discussed early on, then it's like, oh, well, we weren't expecting that. We thought we were on track, but turns out we're not. Or, or the other classic one is uh, you've got this 40 hours of work in front of you, to, let's say, to do a database import, a migration of data from one database to a completely different database. You could do it like you could do some kind of XML export from the first database, try and convert it to XML, uh, sorry, to SQL queries and import it into the new database. Or you could write a script that does it for you, and then it really does only take five minutes. It validates things as it goes, and, and you just sort of turn it on, and it runs maybe for an hour, but it only takes you five minutes to do it. But it took you 10 hours to write the script. Do you charge them for the script? What if you are going to open source the script? Or what if it's an open source script that you found? At the end of the day, their data still gets migrated, but every single one of those examples takes a different amount of time. But my feeling is that you should charge the same amount of money because the result is the same. And it's on you to come up with a way to do it more quickly, more accurately, and with less, the least amount of risk. And if you're a great developer and you've got built this huge library of tools or you know where to find dependable tools, then that benefit accrues to you. But at the end of the day, the client still gets the data migration done. So I don't feel like you should even be thinking about how long it takes you to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that, in kind of the reverse fashion, that kind of bit me, especially with Redmine stuff where I had several dozen up to 100 at the end different plugins. Like a client can come to me and I would, depending on the what they wanted, I might have had 20 to sometimes even 80 or 90% of the code already written and tested, just sitting in another plugin that I could take. And so I was billing hour, hourly at that time. So a plugin that might have been, oh, sorry, never, we'll say it might have been $5,000 if it was an hourly project, might only be $500 because I have all that code. I just got to glue it together in a different configuration. Mm -hmm. um, and so because of that, I would actually you know stress that in my sales process of, you know I already have this, therefore you should work with me. So I'd win the project, but I'd actually not get as much, you know, revenue out of it as I would if I did it all from scratch. Um, and it's a balance, too. Yeah, billing by the hour incentivizes you to not get more efficient. There's no incentive to become more efficient. So you'll always be the same. I'll, I'll take, I don't know, a third exception to that to some degree. You know, a quarter, a third exception to that. In that right. I feel like, and, and it could be that subconsciously it's not the case at all. It could be, like, explicitly it's not the case. But in my billing by the hour for years, like I've always felt, okay, I want to do this the fastest, best way possible for my clients because they'll give me new, better, more interesting problems. And I'd rather work on, you know, as a classic engineer, I'd rather work on new problems than continue working on old ones. But the majority of me realizes that under the surface, clearly, like if something takes 10 hours as opposed to 5 hours, you know, I see that as, well, great, I've filled more billable hours for the week, so that's fantastic. In fact, I, I guess my... charge more. you could deliver it in five hours instead of ten. That should mm -hmm. be more. That's rush service. It's like virtually in all of these cases, we're working for businesses who are, you know, these aren't just like fun side projects for people. These are businesses, and time to market and opportunity costs are major factors. So if somebody comes to me and says, you know, we need this website ASAP, and I say, okay, It'll be six, six months, it'll be $50,000. If you want it in six days, it'll be $150,000. Mm -hmm. 
I'd probably pick the $150,000 one if I could snap my fingers and actually do that. You know, if they if there was a credible claim that I could actually deliver it that quickly with the equal level of quality. If they have the money, of course, that I mean, you know, maybe the numbers are exaggerated, but the concept is that if I had a tool that could do that for them and I only got to charge by the hour, I would be getting a tenth of what mm-hmm. a hack developer could deliver in six months. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's nuts. So yeah, I, 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 one key point is you mentioned earlier, it's uh, you're incentivized to not get better. And I think, you know, for me, yeah, the incentive was to not get faster at, say, creating code for Redmine, but I still wanted to. And so I was actually giving up the extra income. So, like, you know, I wasn't taking that incentive. And I think if you're going to do that, if you're going to, you know, do hourly and continuously improve and all that, I think you really need to, like you said, either do fixed stuff or you need to be bumping your rates up a lot because it's, you know, if it takes you a tenth of the amount of time, in theory, you can charge almost a tenth of the price and the client should still be happy. I mean, the problem with hourly is when you start getting into the higher numbers, it's a sticker shock of the rate, not actually of the total price. Well, to some degree, I mean, I, I was just speaking to a, a, a company and uh, giving giving them basically an hourly quote as well. Because I said, look, I'm going to work in these days. And I probably should have thought about how to, well, I mean, they, they came to me and said, what would it be on an hourly basis for you to be available for tech support for us? So we, we figured something out. And they came to me and said, well, you know, um, like our budget is X. So fine, fine. Like, you know, for now, I'm actually pretty happy with what they're willing to pay me. So that's okay. But... I do realize that because you know my availability is worth a lot to them, and my knowledge base and ability to help them out on a product that's probably making them you know millions is worth a lot to them. So yeah, but there was definitely the sticker shock of oh my god, you charge that much per hour. Yeah, there's a certain it's a weird psychology. I'm glad you guys brought up the hourly rate because sometimes I get pushed back when I say to people that you're not incentivized to actually get better, and people people say, well, yeah, but if I'm better, I can raise my rates. But there's this weird psychological thing where people are conditioned to expect certain a certain range of fairness in prices for particular things. So, like, Absolutely. if you said to somebody that I charge $2,000 an hour, that would be the most they've ever heard of any professional services person charging per hour probably in their entire lives, and they would be offended that you had the gall to set your rates at $2,000 an hour. But people pay me $2,000 an hour to do a talk, a 60-minute talk, but they're not paying for my hour. They're paying for the talk. So the, the concept of what they're paying for and what a reasonable price is for, like, say, a book. Like, a, a book doesn't cost $1,000. You know, a mass-market paperback doesn't cost $1,000. It doesn't even cost $50. People have this sort of conditioned expectation for how much a thing should cost. And an hour of someone's labor that comes in over $300 starts to put them in this realm of, like, jerk. <laughs> it's almost well, like this. But, and you can even divide that up, right? Because if you were to say to someone, well, you know, I, really, I need a really great lawyer, and someone else, oh, well, I have a great lawyer for you. You should just know it's expensive. It's going to be $500 an hour. And everyone's going to sort of roll their eyes, but they're like, well, that's what really amazing lawyers cost. But if you say to someone, you know, I need a really great software engineer, and someone recommends a software engineer who's $500 an hour, I'd be like, get, get out of here. I'm not going to talk to him. That's not going to happen. Right. But no one goes takes the one step further to say, but how long is it going to take him to do this? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is two hours, all of a sudden it's like, oh. But the reason I brought it up is because, in my experience, you can't raise your rates, hourly rates, to a level that's commensurate with your increased efficiency and also acceptable to any buyer. 
it can't happen because your rates would be like five, six hundred dollars in an hour for web design. No one will do it. You'll never make a sale. And the moment that it's effectively, the moment that it's effectively like productized, fixed bid, and people say, okay, I'm paying X and getting Y, then psychologically at least they don't think in terms of the hours, and that's not a, like that just just basically then they're willing to accept it more. That's what you're saying. Yeah, because having a fixed bid forces them to sort of release their preconceived notions about how this type of work is built out and actually focus on the important thing, which is the results that they're hoping to gain. And usually they have a really poor, fuzzy idea of that. Someone just said, we need a new website, and so they said they called me or whatever, and they don't really even know what the goals are. So, you know, you have to figure out what those things are, get a sense of what it's worth, and it, it might could be after you do that that you say, you know what, I can't, I cannot deliver. For the amount of money I'm going to charge you, you shouldn't hire me because you guys are going to get nothing out of this. But hopefully we what should... happens more often is that you say, oh, yeah, you guys are going to benefit drastically from this. You've got this e-commerce website that doesn't work on mobile at all. I can see your bounce rate on mobile is over 80%. You're getting zero sales on mobile, and I can have this thing fixed in under a week so that that bounce rate drops like crazy, and all of a sudden you're getting sales on mobile. They're never going to ask me how many hours. Obviously, it's going to take me less than like probably 40 or 80 hours. They never get into that math of like, who cares? Like, they don't care how much work it's going to take me really. They care that it's done well and quickly and is it effect and it's effective. And once you push it into that zone of forget about my hours, let's talk about you. Let's talk about your project. Let's talk about what you're trying to get out of this. Then all of a sudden the price is maybe when you divide it out, I end up making eight hundred dollars an hour. But no one cares. We should definitely do a show about how you sort of take a fuzzy idea and turn it into something that you can then come up with a fixed bid for, because I think that's something that I'm, I'm still missing. Like, I want to get to that point where I say to people, okay, here's the fixed price, and I know that it'll, like, I know that's going to bring me in much more money. But I have so many people who come to me and say, as you said, I want a website. And getting from I want a website to I want something that does A and B and C, and I know how much time it'll take me, and thus I can charge them and not lose my shirt in the process. Yeah, that would be a Simple, useful disguise. One word question, why? I need a website. Why? Well, because my boss told me to. Well, you need a better reason than that. Why did your boss tell you to do it? You know, I don't want to get into a situation where you guys are going to be disappointed that you hired me, so I need to know that what I'm going to do for you is going to actually make your business better, so we need to understand why we're doing it. And you just talk them out of hiring you, and eventually you'll either get to some kind of metric that you can attach a rough dollar amount to, or you won't. And if you don't, then don't take the gig. Because you're just you're setting yourself up for failure. Because you can't succeed if you don't know what where the finish line is. Mm -hmm. So you have to find out what it is. That's another thing I don't like about hourly billing is it allows everyone to get to work, get to work. We just need to start immediately. Uh, what's your hourly? Okay, just start and we'll and just start billing us every week. And nobody's ever had the conversation about why you're doing it or what the goal is. And everybody ends up focusing on these picayune details of the design or some piece of the architecture that's potentially irrelevant because nobody knows what, where the finish line is. Everyone's just running around in circles really fast. Anyway, I don't know how this turned into me ranting about hourly billing. But I suppose no, no, it's fine, it's fine. And we, everything we turns into you ranting into about it. Yeah, every, pretty much my mouth opens, it turns into a rant on hourly billing. Cliffhanger. All right, so I think we will do... You guys have any picks this week? Eric, any picks? No? My pick is I've been working with my client. That's about it. Excuses, excuses. Jonathan, 
Yeah, I have one to send people to that. So we talked earlier about how something will happen and, you know, somebody will ask you a question or whatever, and all of a sudden a blog post pops out. So that happened to me today. Last week I sent out a retainer quote, uh, a quote for a retainer for a client that um, was, you know, like a monthly retainer type of thing. And today they gave me they gave me a yes, a verbal yes today. So I what I I turned around and sort of took the quote and I anonymized it. I took all of the the customer stuff out of it uh, to post to my chat room and a couple of other groups on Facebook, so that people can see an example of how you would do a kind of quote where you're focusing on higher level things and outcomes more so than you know I'm going to do this and charge $150 an hour for it. Uh, so if you want to go to expensiveproblem.com and sign up for the mailing list there, you'll get a, a link to the PDF download, and uh, you can check it out. It's like a five-page proposal template for retainer type of gigs. Very nice. So I have a pick also, but it's a, it's a silly, frivolous one. I, I just discovered this recently or rediscovered it, existentialcomics.com. Uh, which if, you, if, if you've ever... A, a philosophy comic about the inevitable anguish of living a brief life in an absurd world, also jokes. Uh, and you, you don't have to know very much about philosophy to, I think, enjoy this. And uh, I would say it's mindless fun, but it's actually somewhat mindful fun. All right, well, I think we are done for this month's Q&A. Thanks to everyone who participated in the chat, asking questions, sending them to us. Thanks to Eric and Jonathan. And we will be back next week with a non-live show. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. 